Chapter sixteen and seventeen of Rural Rides. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. Rural Rides by William Cobbett. Chapter sixteen. Rural Ride from Kensington across Surrey and along that county. Rygate, Wednesday evening, nineteenth October, eighteen twenty five. Having some business at Hartswood, near Rygate, I intended to come off this morning on horseback, along with my son Richard, but it rained so furiously the last night, that we gave up the horse project for to-day, being by appointment, to be at Rygate by ten o'clock to-day, so that we came off this morning at five o'clock, in a post-chaise, intending to return home and take our horses. Finding, however, that we cannot quit this place till Friday, we have now sent for our horses, though the weather is dreadfully wet, but we are under a farmhouse roof and the wind may whistle and the rain fall as much as they like. Rygate, Thursday evening, 20th October. Having done my business at Hartswood to-day about eleven o'clock, I went to a sale at a farm, which the farmer is quitting. Here I had a view of what has long been going on all over the country. The farm, which belongs to Christ's Hospital, has been held by a man of the name of Charrington, in whose family the lease has been, I hear, a great number of years. The house is hidden by trees, it stands in the weald of Surrey, close by the river Mole, which is here a mere rivulet, though just below this house. The rivulet supplies the very prettiest flour-mill I ever saw in my life. Everything about this farmhouse was formerly the scene of plain manners and plentiful living, oak clothes chests, oak bedsteads, oak chests of drawers, and oak tables to eat on, long, strong, and well supplied with joint stools. Some of the things were many hundreds of years old, but all appeared to be in a state of decay, and nearly of disuse. There appeared to have been hardly any family in that house, where formerly there were, in all probability, from ten to fifteen men, boys, and maids. And which was the worst of all, there was a parlour, ay, and a carpet, and bell-pull, too. One end of the front of this once plain and substantial house had been moulded into a parlour, and there was the mahogany table, and the fine chairs, and the fine glass, and all as barefaced upstart as any stock jobber in the kingdom can boast of. And there were the decanters, the glasses, the dinner-set of crockery-ware, and all just in the true stock jobber style, and I dare say it has been Squire Charrington, and the Miss Charringtons, and not plain Master Charrington, and his son Hodge, and his daughter Betty Charrington, all of whom this accursed system has, in all likelihood, transmuted, into a species of mock gentlefolks, while it has ground the labourers down into real slaves. Why do not farmers now feed and lodge their workpeople, as they did formerly? Because they cannot keep them upon so little as they give them in wages. This is the real cause of the change. There needs no more to prove that the lot of the working classes has become worse than it formerly was. This fact alone is quite sufficient to settle this point. All the world knows that a number of people boarded in the same house and at the same table can, with as good food, be boarded much cheaper than those persons divided into twos, threes, or fours can be boarded. This is a well-known truth. Therefore, if the farmer now shuts his pantry against his labourers and pays them wholly in money, is it not clear that he does it because he thereby gives them a living cheaper to him, that is to say, a worse living than formerly? Mind, he has a house for them, a kitchen for them to sit in, bedrooms for them to sleep in, tables and stools and benches of everlasting duration, all these he has, all these cost him nothing, and yet so much does he gain by pinching them in wages, 
that he lets all these things remain as of no use, rather than feed labourers in the house. Judge, then, of the change that has taken place in the condition of these labourers, and be astonished, if you can, at the pauperism and the crimes that now disgrace this once happy and moral England. The land produces, on an average, what it always produced, but there is a new distribution of the produce. This squire Charrington's father used, I dare say, to sit at the head of the oak table along with his men, say grace to them, and cut up the meat and the pudding. He might take a cup of strong beer to himself when they had none, but that was pretty nearly all the difference in their manner of living, so that all lived well. But the squire had many wine decanters, and wine glasses, and a dinner set, and a breakfast set, and dessert knives, and these evidently implied carryings on, and a consumption that must of necessity have greatly robbed the long oak table, if it had remained fully tenanted. That long table could not share in the work of the decanters and the dinner set, therefore it became almost untenanted. The labourers retreated to hovels, called cottages, and instead of board and lodging they got money, so little of it as to enable the employer to drink wine, but then, that he might not reduce them to quite starvation, they were enabled to come to him in the king's name, and demand food as paupers. And now, mind, that which a man receives in the king's name, he knows well he has by force, and it is not in nature that he should thank anybody for it, and least of all the party from whom it is forced. Then, if this sort of force be insufficient to obtain him enough to eat and to keep him warm, is it surprising, if you think it no great offence against God, who created no man to starve, to use another sort of force, more within his own control? Is it, in short, surprising, if he resort to theft and robbery? This is not only the natural progress, but it has been the progress in England. The blame is not justly imputed to Squire Charrington and his like. The blame belongs to the infernal stock-jobbing system. There was no reason to expect that farmers would not endeavour to keep pace, in point of show and luxury, with fund-holders, and with all the tribes that war and taxes created. Farmers were not the authors of the mischief, and now they are compelled to shut the labourers out of their houses, and to pinch them in their wages, in order to be able to pay their own taxes. And besides this, the manners and the principles of the working class are so changed, that a sort of self-preservation bids the farmer, especially in some counties, to keep them from beneath his roof. I could not quit this farmhouse without reflecting on the thousands of scores of bacon, and thousands of bushels of bread, that had been eaten from the long oak table which I said to myself, is now perhaps going at last to the bottom of a bridge, that some stock-jobber will stick up over an artificial river in his cockney garden. "'By God, it shan't,' said I, almost in a real passion. "'And so I requested a friend to buy it for me, "'and if he do so, I will take it to Kensington or to Fleet Street, "'for the good it has done in the world. "'When the old farmhouses are down, "'and down they must come in time, "'what a miserable thing the country will be! "'Those that are now erected are mere painted shells "'with a mistress within, "'who is stuck up in a place she calls a parlour "'with, if she have children, the young ladies and gentlemen about her, "'some showy chairs and a sofa,' A sofa, by all means. Half a dozen prints in gilt frames hanging up, some swinging bookshelves with novels and tracts upon them, a dinner brought in by a girl that is perhaps better educated than she, two or three knick-knacks to eat instead of a piece of bacon and a pudding, the house too neat for a dirty-shoed carter to be allowed to come into, and everything proclaiming to every sensible beholder that there is here a constant anxiety to make a show not warranted by the reality. The children, which is the worst part of it, are all too clever to work, they are all to be gentlefolks. Go to plough! Good God! What, young gentlemen go to plough? They become clerks, or some skimmy-dish thing or other, 
they flee from the dirty work as cunning horses do from the bridle what misery is all this what a mass of materials for producing that general and dreadful convulsion that must first or last come and blow this funding and jobbing and enslaving and starving system to atoms i was going to-day by the side of a plat of ground where there was a very fine flock of turkeys i stopped to admire them and observed to the owner how fine they were when he answered we owe them entirely to you sir for we never raised one till we read your cottage economy i then told him that we had this year raised two broods at kensington one black and one white one of nine and one of eight but that about three weeks back they appeared to become dull and pale about the head and that therefore i sent them to a farmhouse where they recovered instantly and the broods being such a contrast to each other in point of colour they were now when prowling over a grass-field amongst the most agreeable sights that i had ever seen i intended of course to let them get their full growth at kensington where they were in a grass-plat about fifteen yards square and where i thought that the feeding of them in great abundance with lettuces and other greens from the garden together with grain would carry them on to perfection but i found that i was wrong and that though you may raise them to a certain size in a small place and with such management they then if so much confined begin to be sickly several of mine began actually to droop and the very day they were sent into the country they became as gay as ever and in three days all the colour about their heads came back to them this town of reigate had in former times a priory which had considerable estates in the neighbourhood and this is brought to my recollection by a circumstance which has recently taken place in this very town we all know how long it has been the fashion for us to take it for granted that the monasteries were bad things but of late i have made some hundreds of thousands of very good protestants begin to suspect that monasteries were better than poor rates and that monks and nuns who fed the poor were better than sinecure and pensioned men and women who feed upon the poor but how came the monasteries how came this that was at reigate for instance why it was if i recollect correctly founded by a surrey gentleman who gave this spot and other estates to it and who as was usual provided that masses were to be said in it for his soul in those of others and that it should as usual give aid to the poor and needy now upon the face of the transaction what harm could this do the community on the contrary it must one would think do it good for here was this estate given to a set of landlords who never could quit the spot who could have no families who could save no money who could hold no private property who could make no will who must spend all their income at reigate and near it who as was the custom fed the poor administered to the sick and taught some at least of the people gratis this upon the face of the thing seems to be a very good way of disposing of a rich man's estate ay but it is said he left his estate away from his relations that is not sure by any means the contrary is fairly to be presumed doubtless it was the custom for catholic priests before they took their leave of a dying rich man to advise him to think of the church and the poor that is to say to exhort him to bequeath something to them and this has been made a monstrous charge against that church it is surprising how blind men are when they have a mind to be blind what despicable dolts they are when they desire to be cheated we of the church of england must have a special deal of good sense and of modesty to be sure to rail against the catholic church on this account when our common prayer-book copied from an act of parliament commands our parsons to do just the same thing ah say the dissenters and particularly the unitarians that queer sect who will have all the wisdom in the world to themselves who will believe and won't believe who will be christians and who won't have a christ who will laugh at you if you believe in the trinity and who would if they could boil you in oil if you do not believe in the resurrection oh say the dissenters we know very well that your church parsons are commanded to get if they can dying people to give their money and estates to the church and the poor as they call the concern though the poor we believe come in for very little which is got in this way 
but what is your church we are the real christians and we upon our souls never play such tricks never no never terrify old women out of their stockings full of guineas and as to us say the unitarians we the most liberal creatures upon earth we whose virtue is indignant at the tricks by which the monks and nuns got legacies from dying people to the injury of heirs and other relations we who are the really enlightened the truly consistent the benevolent the disinterested the exclusive patentees of the salt of the earth which is sold only at or by express permission from our old and original warehouse and manufactory essex street in the strand first street on the left going from temple bar towards charing cross we defy you to show that unitarian parsons stop your protestations and hear my reigate anecdote which as i said above brought the recollection of the old priory into my head the readers of the register heard me several times some years ago mention mr baron massiers who was for a great many years what they call cursitor baron of the exchequer he lived partly in london and partly at reigate for more i believe than half a century and he died about two years ago or less leaving i am told more than a quarter of a million of money the baron came to see me in pall mall in eighteen hundred he always came frequently to see me wherever i was in london not by any means omitting to come to see me in newgate where i was imprisoned for two years with a thousand pounds fine and seven years heavy bail for having expressed my indignation at the flogging of englishmen in the heart of england under a guard of german bayonets and to newgate he always came in his wig and gown in order as he said to show his abhorrence of the sentence i several times passed a week or more with the baron at his house at reigate i might have passed many more if my time and taste would have permitted me to accept of his invitations therefore i knew the baron well he was a most conscientious man he was when i first knew him still a very clever man he retained all his faculties to a very great age in eighteen fifteen i think it was i got a letter from him written in a firm hand correctly as to grammar and ably as to matter and he must then have been little short of ninety he never was a bright man but had always been a very sensible just and humane man and a man too who always cared a great deal for the public good and he was the only man that i ever heard of who refused to have his salary augmented when an augmentation was offered and when all other such salaries were augmented i had heard of this i asked him about it when i saw him again and he said there was no work to be added and i saw no justice in adding to the salary it must added he be paid by somebody and the more i take the less that somebody must have he did not save money for money's sake he saved it because his habits would not let him spend it he kept a house in rathbone place chambers in the temple and his very pretty place at reigate he was by no means stingy but his scale and habits were cheap then consider too a bachelor of nearly a hundred years old his father left him a fortune his brother who also died a very old bachelor left him another and the money lay in the funds and it went on doubling itself over and over again till it became that immense mass which we have seen above and which when the baron was making his will he had neither catholic priest nor protestant parson to exhort him to leave to the church and the poor instead of his relations though as we shall presently see he had somebody else to whom to leave his great heap of money the baron was the most implacable enemy of the catholics as catholics there was rather a peculiar reason for this his grandfather having been a french huguenot and having fled with his children to england at the time of the revocation of the edict of nantes the baron was a very humane man his humanity made him assist to support the french emigrant priests but at the same time he caused sir richard musgrove's book against the irish catholics to be published at his own expense he and i never agreed upon this subject and this subject was with him a vital one he had no asperity in his nature he was naturally all gentleness and benevolence 
and therefore he never resented what I said to him on this subject, and which nobody else ever, I believe, ventured to say to him. But he did not like it, and he liked it less, because I certainly beat him in the argument. However, this was long before he visited me in Newgate, and it never produced, though the dispute was frequently revived, any difference in his conduct towards me, which was uniformly friendly to the last time I saw him, before his memory was gone. There was great excuse for the baron. From his very birth he had been taught to hate and abhor the Catholic religion. He had been told that his father and mother had been driven out of France by the Catholics, and there was that mother dinning this in his ears, and all manner of horrible stories along with it, during all the tender years of his life. In short, the prejudice made part of his very frame. In the year 1803, in August, I think it was, I had gone down to his house on a Friday, and was there on a Sunday. After dinner, he and I and his brother walked to the Priory, as is still called the Mansion House, in the dell at Rightgate, which is now occupied by Lord Eastnor, and in which a Mr. Burkett, I think, then lived. After coming away from the Priory, the Baron, whose native place was Betchworth, about two or three miles from Rightgate, who knew the history of every house and everything else in this part of the country, began to tell me why the place was called the Priory. From this he came to the superstition and dark ignorance that induced people to found monasteries, and he dwelt particularly on the injustice to heirs and relations, and he went on in the usual Protestant strain, and with all the bitterness of which he was capable against those crafty priests, who thus plundered families by means of the influence which they had over people in their dotage, or who were naturally weak-minded. Alas, poor Baron! He does not seem to have at all foreseen what was to become of his own money. What would he have said to me if I had answered his observations by predicting that he would give his great mass of money to a little parson, for that parson's own private use, leave only a mere pittance to his own relations, leave the little parson his house in which we were then sitting, along with all his other real property, that the little parson would come into the house and take possession, and that his own relations, two nieces, would walk out. Yet all this has actually taken place, and that too after the poor old baron's fourscore years of jokes about the tricks of popish priests practised in the dark ages upon the ignorant and superstitious people of Reigate. When I first knew the baron, he was a staunch Church of England man. He went to church every Sunday once, at least. He used to take me to Reigate Church, and I observed that he was very well versed in his prayer-book. But a decisive proof of his zeal as a Church of England man is that he settled an annual sum on the incumbent of Reigate, in order to induce him to preach or pray, I forget which, in the church twice on a Sunday instead of once. And in case this additional preaching or praying were not performed in Reigate Church, the annuity was to go, and sometimes it does now go, to the poor of an adjoining parish, and not to those of Reigate, lest, I suppose, the parson, the overseers, and other ratepayers might happen to think that the baron's annuity would be better laid out in food for the bodies than for the souls of the poor or, in other words, lest the money should be taken annually and added to the poor rates to ease the purses of the farmers. It did not, I dare say, occur to the poor baron, when he was making this settlement, that he was now giving money to make a church parson put up additional prayers, though he had all his lifetime been laughing at those who, in the dark ages, gave money for this purpose to Catholic priests. Nor did it, I dare say, occur to the baron, that in his contingent settlement of the annuity on the poor of an adjoining parish, he as good as declared his opinion that he distrusted the piety of the parson, the overseers, the church wardens, and indeed of all the people of Reigate. Yes, at the very moment that he was providing additional prayers for them, he in the very same parchment put a provision, which clearly showed that he was thoroughly convinced that they, overseers, church wardens, people, parson, and all, loved money better than prayers. What was this then? Was it hypocrisy? Was it ostentation? No, mistake. 
The Baron thought that those who could not go to church in the morning ought to have an opportunity of going in the afternoon. He was aware of the power of money, but, when he came to make his obligatory clause, he was compelled to do that which reflected great discredit on the very church and religion which it was his object to honour and uphold. However, the Baron was a staunch churchman, as this fact clearly proves. Several years he had become what they call an Unitarian. The first time, I think, that I perceived this was in 1812. He came to see me in Newgate, and he soon began to talk about religion, which had not been much his habit. He went on at a great rate, laughing about the Trinity, and I remember that he repeated the Unitarian Dystic, which makes a joke of the idea of there being a devil, and which they all repeat to you, and at the same time laugh and look as cunning and as priggish as jackdaws, just as if they were wiser than all the rest of the world. I hate to hear the conceited and disgusting prigs seeming to take it for granted that they only are wise, because others believe in the incarnation without being able to reconcile it to reason. The prigs don't consider that there is no more reason for the resurrection than for the incarnation, and yet having taken it into their heads to come up again, they would murder you if they dared, if you were to deny the resurrection. I do most heartily despise this priggish set for their conceit and impudence, but seeing that they want reason for the incarnation, seeing that they will have effects here ascribed to none but usual causes, let me put a question or two to them. 1. Whence comes the white clover that comes up and covers all the ground in America, where hardwood trees, after standing for thousands of years, have been burnt down? 2. Whence come, in similar cases as to self-woods, the hurtleberries in some places, and the raspberries in others? 3. Whence come fish in new-made places where no fish have ever been put? 4. What causes horsehair to become living things? 5. What causes frogs to come in drops of rain, or those drops of rain to turn to frogs, the moment they are on the earth? 6. What causes mosquitoes to come in rain-water caught in a glass, covered over immediately with oil-paper, tied down and so kept till full of these winged torments? 7. What causes flounders, real little flatfish, brown on one side, white on the other, mouth sideways, with tail, fins and all, leaping alive, in the inside of a rotten sheep's, and of every rotten sheep's liver? There, prigs, answer these questions. Fifty might be given you, but these are enough. Answer these. I suppose you will not deny the facts. They are all notoriously true. The last, which of itself would be quite enough for you, will be attested on oath, if you like it, by any farmer, ploughman, and shepherd in England. Answer this question seven, or hold your conceited gabble about the impossibility of that which I need not here name. Men of sense do not attempt to discover that which it is impossible to discover. They leave things pretty much as they find them, and take care, at least, not to make changes of any sort without very evident necessity. The poor baron, however, appeared to be quite eaten up with his rational Christianity. He talked like a man who has made a discovery of his own. He seemed as pleased as I, when I was a boy, used to be, when I had just found a rabbit's stop or a blackbird's nest full of young ones. I do not recollect what I said upon this occasion. It is most likely that I said nothing in contradiction to him. I saw the baron many times after this, but I never talked with him about religion. Before the summer of 1822, I had not seen him for a year or two, perhaps. But in July of that year, on a very hot day, I was going down Rathbone Place, and happening to cast my eye on the Baron's house, I knocked at the door to ask how he was. His man-servant came to the door, and told me that his master was at dinner. Well, said I, never mind, give my best respects to him. But the servant, who had always been with him since I knew him, begged me to come in for that he was sure his master would be glad to see me. I thought, as it was likely that I might never see him again, I would go in. The servant announced me, and the baron said, Beg him to walk in. In I went, and there I found the baron at dinner, but not quite alone, nor without spiritual as well as carnal and vegetable nourishment before him, 
for there on the opposite side of his vis-a-vis -vis dining table sat that nice neat straight prim piece of mortality commonly called the reverend robert fellows who was the chaplain to the unfortunate queen until mr alderman wood's son came to supply his place and who was now i could clearly see in a fair way enough i had dined and so i let them dine on the baron was become quite a child or worse as to mind though he ate as heartily as i ever saw him and he was always a great eater when his servant said here is mr cobbett sir he said how do you do sir i have read much of your writing sir but never had the pleasure to see your person before after a time i made him recollect me but he directly after being about to relate something about america turned towards me and said were you ever in america sir but i must mention one proof of the state of his mind mr fellows asked me about the news from ireland where the people were then in a state of starvation and i answering that it was likely that many of them would actually be starved to death the baron quitting his green goose and green peas turned to me and said starve sir why don't they go to the parish why said i you know sir that there are no poor rates in ireland upon this he exclaimed what no poor rates in ireland why not i did not know that i can't think how that can be and then he rambled on in a childish sort of way at the end of about half an hour or it might be more i shook hands with the poor old baron for the last time well convinced that i should never see him again and not less convinced that i had seen his heir he died in about a year or so afterwards left to his own family about twenty thousand pounds and to his ghostly guide the holy robert fellows all the rest of his immense fortune which as i have been told amounts to more than a quarter of a million of money now the public will recollect that while mr fellows was at the queen's he was in the public papers charged with being an unitarian at the same time that he officiated as her chaplain it is also well known that he never publicly contradicted this it is besides the general belief at reigate however this we know well that he is a parson of one sort or the other and that he is not a catholic priest that is enough for me i see this poor foolish old man leaving a monstrous mass of money to this little protestant parson whom he had not even known more i believe than about three or four years when the will was made i cannot say i know nothing at all about that i am supposing that all was perfectly fair that the baron had his senses when he made his will that he clearly meant to do that which he did but then i must insist that if he had left the money to a catholic priest to be by him expended on the endowment of a convent wherein to say masses and to feed and teach the poor it would have been a more sensible and public-spirited part in the baron much more beneficial to the town and environs of reigate and beyond all measure more honourable to his own memory chilworth friday evening twenty first october it has been very fine to-day yesterday morning there was snow on reigate hill enough to look white from where we were in the valley we set off about half-past one o'clock and came all down the valley through buckland betchworth dorking shear and albury to this place very few prettier rides in england and the weather beautifully fine there are more meeting-houses and churches in the vale and i have heard of no less than five people in this vale who have gone crazy on account of religion to-morrow we intend to move on towards the west to take a look just a look at the hampshire parsons again the turnips seem fine but they cannot be large all other things are very fine indeed everything seems to prognosticate a hard winter all the country people say that it will be so end of chapter sixteen chapter seventeen of rural rides ride from chilworth in surrey to winchester thursley four miles from godalming surrey sunday evening twenty third october eighteen twenty five we set out from chilworth to-day about noon this is a little hamlet lying under the south side of st martha's hill 
and on the other side of that hill, a little to the northwest, is the town of Guildford, which, taken with its environs, I, who have seen so many, many towns, think the prettiest, and taken altogether, the most agreeable and most happy-looking that I ever saw in my life. Here are hill and dell in endless variety. Here are the chalk and the sand, vying with each other in making beautiful scenes. Here is a navigable river and fine meadows. Here are woods and downs. Here is something of everything but fat marshes and their skeleton-making eggs. The vale all the way down to Chilworth from Reigate is very delightful. We did not go to Guildford, nor did we cross the river way to come through Godalming, but bore away to our left and came through the village of Hambleton, going first to Hascombe to show Richard the South Downs from that high land, which looks southward over the wheels of Surrey and Sussex, with all their fine and innumerable oak trees. Those that travel on turnpike roads know nothing of England. From Hascombe to Thursley almost the whole way is across fields or commons, or along narrow lands. Here we see the people without any disguise or affectation. Against a great road things are made for show. Here we see them without any show. And here we gain real knowledge as to their situation. We cross to-day three turnpike roads, that from Guildford to Horsham, that from Godalming to Worthing, I believe, and that from Godalming to Chichester. Thursday, Wednesday, 26th October. The weather has been beautiful ever since last Thursday morning, but there has been a white frost every morning, and the days have been coldish. Here, however, I am quite at home in a room, where there is one of my American fireplaces, bought by my host, of Mr. Judson of Kensington, who has made many a score of families comfortable, instead of sitting shivering in the cold. At the house of the gentleman whose house I am now in, there is a good deal of fuel-wood, and here I see in the parlours those fine and cheerful fires that make a great part of the happiness of the Americans. But these fires are to be had only in this sort of fireplace. Ten times the fuel, nay, no quantity, would effect the same object in any other fireplace. It is equally good for coal as for wood, but for pleasure a wood-fire is the thing. There is, round about almost every gentleman's or great farmer's house, more wood suffered to rot every year in one shape or another, than would make with this fireplace a couple of rooms constantly warm from October to June. Here, peat, turf, sawdust, and wood are burnt in these fireplaces. My present host has three of the fireplaces. Being out a-coursing to-day, I saw a queer-looking building upon one of the thousands of hills that nature has tossed up in endless variety of form round the skirts of the lofty hindhead. This building is, it seems, called a semaphore, or semi-fair, or something of that sort. What this word may have been hatched out of I cannot say, but it means a job, I am sure. To call it an alarm-post would not have been so convenient, for people not endued with Scotch intellect might have wondered why the devil we should have to pay for alarm-posts, and might have thought that, with all our glorious victories, we had brought our hogs to a fine market if our dread of the enemy were such as to induce us to have alarm-posts all over the country." Such unintellectual people might have thought that we had conquered France by the immortal Wellington, to little purpose, if we were still in such fear as to build alarm-posts, and they might in addition have observed that for many hundred of years England stood in need of neither signal-posts nor standing army of mercenaries, but relied safely on the courage and public spirit of the people themselves. By calling the thing by an outlandish name, these reflections amongst the unintellectual are obviated. Alarm-post would be a nasty name, and it would puzzle people exceedingly when they saw one of these at a place like Ash, a little village on the north side of the chalk ridge, called the Hog's Back, going from Guildford to Farnham. What can this be for? Why are these expensive things put up all over the country? Respecting the movements of whom is wanted this alarm system? Will no member ask this in Parliament? Not one, not a man, and yet it is a thing to ask about. 
ah it is in vain thing that you thus are making your preparations in vain that you are setting your trammels the debt the blessed debt that best ally of the people will break them all will snap them as the hornet does the cobweb and even these very semaphores contribute towards the force of that ever blessed debt curious to see how things work the glorious revolution which was made for the avowed purpose of maintaining the protestant ascendancy and which was followed by such terrible persecution of the catholics that glorious affair which set aside a race of kings because they were catholics served as the precedent for the american revolution also called glorious and this second revolution compelled the successors of the makers of the first to begin to cease their persecutions of the catholics then again the debt was made to raise and keep armies on foot to prevent reform of parliament because as it was feared by the aristocracy reform would have humbled them and this debt created for this purpose is fast sweeping the aristocracy out of their estates as a clown with his foot kicks field mice out of their nests there was a hope that the debt could have been reduced by stealth as it were that the aristocracy could have been saved in this way that hope now no longer exists in all likelihood the funds will keep going down what is to prevent this if the interest of exchequer bills be raised as the broadsheet tells us it is to be what the funds fall in time of peace and the french funds not fall in time of peace however it will all happen just as it ought to happen even the next session of parliament will bring out matters of some interest the thing is now working in the surest possible way the great business of life in the country appertains in some way or other to the game and especially at this time of the year if it were not for the game a country life would be like an everlasting honeymoon which would in about half a century put an end to the human race in towns or large villages people make a shift to find the means of rubbing the rust off from each other by a vast variety of sources of contest a couple of wives meeting in the street and giving each other a wry look or a look not quite civil enough will if the parties be hard pushed for a ground of contention do pretty well but in the country there is alas no such resource here are no walls for people to take of each other here they are so placed as to prevent the possibility of such lucky local contact here is more than room of every sort elbow leg horse or carriage for them all even at church most of the people being in the meeting-houses the pews are surprisingly too large here therefore where all circumstances seem calculated to cause never-ceasing concord with its accompanying dullness there would be no relief at all were it not for the game this happily supplies the place of all other sources of alternate dispute and reconciliation it keeps all in life and motion from the lord down to the hedger when i see two men whether in a market-room by the wayside in a parlour in a churchyard or even in the church itself engaged in manifestly deep and most momentous discourse i will if it be any time between september and february bet ten to one that it is in some way or other about the game the wives and daughters hear so much of it that they inevitably get engaged in the disputes and thus all are kept in a state of vivid animation i should like very much to be able to take a spot a circle of twelve miles in diameter and take an exact account of all the time spent by each individual above the age of ten that is the age they begin at in talking during the game season of one year about the game and about sporting exploits i verily believe that it would amount upon an average to six times as much as all the other talk put together and as to the anger the satisfaction the scolding the commendation the chagrin the exultation the envy the emulation where are there any of these in the country unconnected with the game there is however an important distinction to be made between hunters including coursers and shooters the latter are as far as relates to their exploits a disagreeable class compared with the former and the reason of this is their doings are almost wholly their own while in the case of the others the achievements are the property of the dogs nobody likes to hear another talk much in praise of his own acts 
unless those acts have a manifest tendency to produce some good to the hearer. And shooters do talk much of their own exploits, and those exploits rather tend to humiliate the hearer. Then a great shooter will, nine times out of ten, go so far as almost to lie a little, and though people do not tell him of it, they do not like him the better for it, and he but too frequently discovers that they do not believe him. Whereas hunters are mere followers of the dogs, as mere spectators, their praises, if any are called for, are bestowed on the greyhounds, the hounds, the fox, the hare, or the horses. There is a little rivalship in the riding, or in the behaviour of the horses, but this has so little to do with the personal merit of the sportsman, that it never produces a want of good fellowship in the evening of the day. A shooter who has been missing all day must have an uncommon share of good sense, not to feel mortified while the slaughterers are relating the adventures of that day, and this is what cannot exist in the case of the hunters. Bring me into a room with a dozen men in it, who have been sporting all day, or rather let me be in an adjoining room, where I can hear the sound of their voices without being able to distinguish the words, and I will bet ten to one that I tell whether they be hunters or shooters. I was once acquainted with a famous shooter whose name was William Ewing. He was a barrister of Philadelphia, but became far more renowned by his gun than by his law-cases. We spent scores of days together a-shooting, and were extremely well matched, I having excellent dogs and caring little about my reputation as a shot his dogs being good for nothing, and he caring more about his reputation as a shot than as a lawyer. The fact which I am going to relate respecting this gentleman ought to be a warning to young men how they become enamoured of this species of vanity. We had gone about ten miles from our home to shoot where partridges were said to be very plentiful. We found them so. In the course of a November day he had just before dark shot and sent to the farmhouse, or kept in his bag, ninety-nine partridges. He made some few double shots, and he might have a miss or two, for he sometimes shot when out of my sight, on account of the woods. However, he said that he killed at every shot, and as he had counted the birds when we went to dinner at the farmhouse, and when he cleaned his gun, he just before sunset knew that he had killed ninety-nine partridges, every one upon the wing, and a great part of them in woods very thickly set with largish trees. It was a grand achievement, but unfortunately he wanted to make it a hundred. The sun was setting, and in that country darkness comes almost at once. It is more like the going out of a candle than that of a fire, and I wanted to be off, as we had a very bad road to go, and as he, being under strict petticoat government, to which he most loyally and dutifully submitted, was compelled to get home that night taking me with him, the vehicle, horse and gig, being mine. I therefore pressed him to come away, and moved on myself towards the house, that of old John Brown in Bucks County, grandfather of that General Brown, who gave some of our whiskered heroes such a rough handling last war, which was waged for the purpose of deposing James Madison, at which house I would have stayed all night, but from which I was compelled to go by that watchful government under which he had the good fortune to live. Therefore I was in haste to be off. No, he would kill the hundredth bird. In vain did I talk of the bad road, and its many dangers for want of moon. The poor partridges which we had scattered about were calling all around us, and just at this moment up got one under his feet, in a field in which the wheat was three or four inches high. He shot and missed. That's it, said he, running as if to pick up the bird. What, said I? "'You don't think you killed, do you? "'Why, there's the bird now, not only alive, but calling in that wood,' "'which was at about a hundred yards' distance. "'He, in that form of words usually employed in such cases, "'asserted that he shot the bird and saw it fall, "'and I, in much about the same form of words, "'asserted that he had missed, "'and that I, with my own eyes, saw the bird fly into the wood. "'This was too much. "'To miss once out of a hundred times, "'to lose such a chance of immortality. "'He was a good-humoured man. "'I liked him very much.' and I could not help feeling for him when he said, "'Well, sir, I killed the bird, and if you choose to go away and take your dog away, so as to prevent me from finding it, you must do it. The dog is yours, to be sure.' "'The dog,' said I, in a very mild tone, 
why ewing there is the spot and could we not see it upon this smooth green surface if it were there however he began to look about and i called the dog and affected to join him in the search pity for his weakness got the better of my dread of the bad road after walking backward and forward many times upon about twenty yards square with our eyes to the ground looking for what both of us knew was not there i had passed him he going one way and i the other and i happened to be turning round just after i had passed him when i saw him putting his hand behind him take a partridge out of his bag and let it fall upon the ground i felt no temptation to detect him but turned away my head and kept looking about presently he having returned to the spot where the bird was called out to me in a most triumphant tone here here come here i went up to him and he pointing with his finger down to the bird and looking hard in my face at the same time said there cobbett i hope that will be a warning to you never to be obstinate again well said i come along and away we went as merry as larks when we got to brown's he told them the story triumphed over me most clamorously and though he often repeated the story to my face i never had the heart to let him know that i knew of the imposition which puerile vanity had induced so sensible and honourable a man to be mean enough to practise a professed shot is almost always a very disagreeable brother sportsman he must in the first place have a head rather of the emptiest to pride himself upon so poor a talent then he is always out of temper if the game fail or if he miss it he never participates in that great delight which all sensible men enjoy at beholding the beautiful action the docility the zeal the wonderful sagacity of the pointer and the setter he is always thinking about himself always anxious to surpass his companions i remember that once ewing and i had lost our dog we were in a wood and the dog had gone out and found a covey in a wheat stubble joining the wood we had been whistling and calling him for perhaps half an hour or more when we came out of the wood we saw him pointing with one foot up and soon after he keeping his foot and body unmoved gently turned round his head towards the spot where he heard us as if to bid us come on and when he saw that we saw him turned his head back again i was so delighted that i stopped to look with admiration ewing astonished at my want of alacrity pushed on shot one of the partridges and thought no more about the conduct of the dog than if the sagacious creature had had nothing at all to do with the matter when i left america in eighteen hundred i gave this dog to lord henry stuart who was when he came home a year or two afterwards about to bring him to astonish the sportsman even in england but those of pennsylvania were resolved not to part with him and therefore they stole him the night before his lordship came away lord henry had plenty of pointers after his return and he saw hundreds but always declared that he never saw anything approaching in excellence this american dog for the information of sportsmen i ought to say that this was a small-headed and sharp-nosed pointer hair as fine as that of a greyhound little and short ears very light in the body very long-legged and swift as a good lurcher i had him a puppy and he never had any breaking but he pointed staunchly at once and i am of opinion that this sort is in all respects better than the heavy breed mr thornton i beg his pardon i believe he is now a knight of some sort who was and perhaps still is our envoy in portugal at the time here referred to was a sort of partner with lord henry in this famous dog and gratitude to the memory of the dog i mean will i am sure or at least i hope so make him bear witness to the truth of my character of him and if one could hear an ambassador speak out i think that mr thornton would acknowledge that his calling has brought him in pretty close contact with many a man who was possessed of most tremendous political power without possessing half the sagacity half the understanding of this dog and without being a thousandth part so faithful to his trust i am quite satisfied that there are as many sorts of men as there are of dogs swift was a man and so is walter the base but is the sort the same it cannot be education alone that makes the amazing difference that we see besides we see men of the very same rank and riches in education differing as widely as the pointer does from the pug the name man is common to all the sorts and hence arises very great mischief 
What confusion must there be in rural affairs, if there were no names whereby to distinguish hounds, greyhounds, pointers, spaniels, terriers, and sheep-dogs, from each other? And what pretty work if, without regard to the sorts of dogs, men were to attempt to employ them? Yet this is done in the case of men. A man is always a man, and without the least regard as to the sort, they are promiscuously placed in all kinds of situations. Now if Mr. Brougham, Doctors Birkbeck, McCullough and Black, and that profound personage, Lord John Russell, will, in their forthcoming London University, teach us how to divide men into sorts, instead of teaching us to augment the capital of the nation, by making paper money, they will render us a real service. That will be a philosophy worth attending to. What would be said of the squire who should take a foxhound out to find partridges for him to shoot at? Yet would this be more absurd than to set a man to law-making, who was manifestly formed for the express purpose of sweeping the streets or digging out sewers? Farnham, Surrey, Thursday, October 27th. We came over the heath from Thursley this morning, on our way to Winchester. Mr. Wyndham's foxhounds are coming to Thursley on Saturday. More than three-fourths of all the interesting talk in that neighbourhood for some days past has been about this anxiously looked-for event. I have seen no man or boy who did not talk about it. There had been a false report about it, the hounds did not come, and the anger of the disappointed people was very great. At last, however, the authentic intelligence came, and I left them all as happy as if all were young and all just going to be married. An abatement of my pleasure, however, on this joyous occasion was, that I brought away with me one who was as eager as the best of them. Richard, though now only eleven years and six months old, had, it seems, one fox-hunt in Herefordshire last winter, and he actually has begun to talk rather contemptuously of hare-hunting. To show me that he is in no danger, he has been leaping his horse over banks and ditches by the roadside, all our way across the country and from Reigate, and he joined with such glee in talking of the expected arrival of the fox-hounds, that I felt some little pain at bringing him away. My engagement at Winchester is for Saturday, but if it had not been so, the deep and hidden ruts in the heath, in a wood in the midst of which the hounds are sure to find, and the immense concourse of horsemen that is sure to be assembled, would have made me bring him away. Upon the high, hard and open countries, I should not be afraid of for him, but here the danger would have been greater than it would have been right for me to suffer him to run. We came hither by the way of Waverley Abbey and Moor Park. On the commons I showed Richard some of my old hunting scenes, when I was of his age or younger, reminding him that I was obliged to hunt on foot. We got leave to go and see the grounds at Waverley, where all the old monks' garden walls are totally gone, and where the spot is become a sort of lawn. I showed him the spot where the strawberry garden was, and where I, when sent to gather aubois, used to eat every remarkably fine one, instead of letting it go to be eaten by Sir Robert Rich. I showed him a tree close by the ruins of the abbey, from a limb of which I once fell into the river, in an attempt to take the nest of a crow, which had artfully placed it upon a branch so far from the trunk, as not to be able to bear the weight of a boy eight years old. I showed him an old elm tree, which was hollow even then, into which I, when a very little boy, once saw a cat go, that was as big as a middle-sized spaniel dog, for relating which I got a great scolding, for standing to which I at last got a beating, but stand to which I still did. I have since many times repeated it, and I would take my oath of it to this day. When in New Brunswick I saw the great wild grey cat, which is there called a Lucifer, and it seemed to me to be just such a cat as I had seen at Waverley. I found the ruins not very greatly diminished, but it is strange how small the mansion and ground and everything but the trees appeared to me. They were all great to my mind when I saw them last, and that early impression had remained, whenever I had talked or thought of the spot, so that when I came to see them again, after seeing the sea and so many other immense things, it seemed as if they had all been made small. This was not the case with regard to the trees, which are nearly as big here as they are anywhere else, 
and the old cat-elm, for instance, which Richard measured with his whip, is about sixteen or seventeen feet round. From Waverley we went to Moor Park, once the seat of Sir William Temple, and when I was a very little boy, the seat of a lady or a Mrs. Temple. Here I showed Richard Mother Ludlam's hole. But, alas, it is not the enchanting place that I knew it, nor that which Gross describes in his antiquities. The semicircular paling is gone, the basins to catch the never-ceasing little stream are gone, the iron cups fastened by chains for people to drink out of are gone, the pavement all broken to pieces, the seats for people to sit on on both sides of the cave torn up and gone, the stream that ran down a clean paved channel now making a dirty gutter, and the ground opposite which was a grove chiefly of laurels, intersected by closely mowed grass walks, now become a poor ragged-looking alder coppice. Near the mansion I showed Richard the hill upon which Dean Swift tells us he used to run for exercise, while he was pursuing his studies here, and I would have showed him the garden seat, under which Sir William Temple's heart was buried, agreeably to his will, but the seat was gone, also the wall at the back of it, and the exquisitely beautiful little lawn in which the seat stood was turned into a parcel of diverse-shaped cockney clumps, planted according to the strictest rules of artificial and refined vulgarity. At Waverley, Mr. Thompson, a merchant of some sort, has succeeded after the monks, the Orby Hunters, and Sir Robert Rich. At Moor Park, a Mr. Lang, a West Indian planter or merchant, has succeeded the Temples. And at the castle of Farnham, which you see from Moor Park, Bishop Prettyman Tomlin has, at last, after perfectly regular and due gradations, succeeded William of Wickham. In coming up from Moor Park to Farnham Town, I stopped opposite the door of a little old house, where there appeared to be a great parcel of children. There, Dick, said I, when I was just such a little creature as that, whom you see in the doorway, I lived in this very house with my grandmother Cobbett. He pulled up his horse and looked very hard at it, but said nothing, and on we came. Winchester, Sunday noon, October 30th. We came away from Farnham about noon on Friday, promising Bishop Prettyman to notice him and his way of living more fully on our return. At Alton we got some bread and cheese at a friend's, and then came to Alresford by Medstead, in order to have fine turf to ride on, and to see on this lofty land that which is perhaps the finest beech wood in all England. These high-down countries are not garden plats, like Kent, but they have from my first seeing them, when I was about ten, always been my delight. Large sweeping downs, and deep dells here and there, with villages amongst lofty trees, are my great delight. When we got to Alresford it was nearly dark, and not being able to find a room to our liking, we resolved to go, though in the dark, to Easton, a village about six miles from Alresford, down by the side of the Hitchin River. Coming from Easton yesterday, I learned that Sir Charles Ogle, the eldest son and successor of Sir Chaloner Ogle, had sold to some general his mansion and estate at Martyrs Worthy, a village on the north side of the Hitchin, just opposite Easton. The Ogles had been here for a couple of centuries, perhaps. They are gone off now, for good and all, as the country people call it. Well, what I have to say to Sir Charles Ogle upon this occasion is this. It was you who moved at the county meeting, in 1817, that address to the regent, which you brought ready engrossed upon parchment, which Fleming the sheriff declared to have been carried, though a word of it never was heard by the meeting, which address applauded the power of imprisonment bill, just then passed, and the like of which address you will not in all human probability ever again move in Hampshire, and I hope nowhere else. So you see, Sir Charles, there is one consolation at any rate." I learned, too, that Greem, a famously loyal squire and justice, whose son was, a few years ago, made a distributor of stamps in this county, was become so modest as to exchange his big and ancient mansion at Cheriton, or somewhere there, for a very moderate-sized house in the town of Alresford. 
I saw his household goods advertised in the Hampshire newspaper a little while ago, to be sold by public auction. I rubbed my eyes, or rather my spectacles, and looked again and again, for I remembered the loyal squire, and I with singular satisfaction record this change in his scale of existence, which has, no doubt, proceeded solely from that prevalence of mind over matter, which the Scotch philosophers have taken such pains to inculcate, and which makes him flee from greatness as from that which diminishes the quantity of intellectual enjoyment. And so now he, wandering man can want the larger pile, exults and owns his cottage with a smile. And they really tell me that his present house is not much bigger than that of my dear good old grandmother Cobbett. But, and it may not be wholly useless for the squire to know it, she never burnt candles, but rushes dipped in grease, as I have described them in my cottage economy. And this was one of the means that she made use of in order to secure a bit of good bacon and good bread to eat, and that made her never give me potatoes cold or hot. No bad hint for the squire, father of the distributor of stamps. Good bacon is a very nice thing, I can assure him, and if the quantity be small, it is all the sweeter, provided, however, it be not too small. This squire used to be a great friend of old George Rose, but his patron's taste was different from his. George preferred a big house to a little one, and George began with a little one, and ended with a big one. Just by Alresford there was another old friend and supporter of old George Rose, Squire Rawlinson, whom I remember a very great squire in this county. He is now a police squire in London, and is one of those guardians of the Wen, respecting whose proceedings we read eternal columns in the broadsheet. This being Sunday, I heard about seven o'clock in the morning a sort of a jangling, made by a bell or two in the cathedral. We were getting ready to be off to cross the country to Berkeley, which lies under the lofty hills at Highclere, about twenty-two miles from this city. But hearing the bells of the cathedral, I took Richard to show him that ancient and most magnificent pile, and particularly to show him the tomb of that famous bishop of Winchester, William of Wickham, who was the chancellor and the minister of the great and glorious king, Edward the Third, who sprang from poor parents in the little village of Wickham, three miles from Botley, and who, amongst other great and most munificent deeds, founded the famous college or school of Winchester, and also one of the colleges at Oxford. I told Richard about this as we went from the inn down to the cathedral, and when I showed him the tomb where the bishop lies on his back, in his Catholic robes, with his mitre on his head, his shepherd's crook by his side, with little children at his feet, their hands put together in a praying attitude, he looked with a degree of inquisitive earnestness that pleased me very much. I took him as far as I could about the cathedral. The service was now begun. There is a dean, and God knows how many prebends, belonging to this immensely rich bishopric and chapter, and there were at this service two or three men and five or six boys in white surplices, with a congregation of fifteen women and four men. Gracious God! If William of Wickham could at that moment have been raised from his tomb, if St. Swithin, whose name the cathedral bears, or Alfred the Great, to whom St. Swithin was tutor, if either of these could have come, and had been told that that was now what was carried on by men, who talked of the damnable errors of those who founded that very church, but it beggars one's feelings, to attempt to find words whereby to express them upon such a subject and such an occasion. How, then, am I to describe what I felt, when I yesterday saw in Hyde Meadow a county bridewell, standing on the very spot where stood the abbey which was founded and endowed by Alfred, which contained the bones of that maker of the English name, and also those of the learned monk St. Grimbald, whom Alfred brought to England to begin the teaching at Oxford. After we came out of the cathedral, Richard said, "'Why, Papa, nobody can build such places now, can they?' "'No, my dear,' said I. "'That building was made when there were no poor wretches in England called paupers, when there were no poor rates, when every labouring man was clothed in good woollen cloth, and when all had a plenty of meat and bread and beer. 
This talk lasted us to the inn, where, just as we were going to set off, it most curiously happened that a parcel which had come from Kensington by the night-coach was put into my hands by the landlord, containing, amongst other things, a pamphlet sent to me from Rome, being an Italian translation of number one of the Protestant Reformation. I will here insert the title for the satisfaction of Dr. Black, who, some time ago, expressed his utter astonishment that such a work should be published in the nineteenth century. Why, Doctor, did you want me to stop till the twentieth century? That would have been a little too long, Doctor. Storia della Reforma Protestante in Inghilterra ed in Irlanda, la quale dimostra come un tal avvenimento ha impoverito e degradato il grosso del popolo in quei paesi in una serie di lettere indirizzate a tutti i sensati e giusti inglesi da Guglielmo Cobbett e dal inglese recate in italiano da Domenico Gregori, Roma, 1825, presso Francesco Borlie, con approvazione. There, Dr. Black, write you a book that shall be translated into any foreign language, and when you have done that, you may again call mine pig's meat. End of chapter 17